the Classic Comics Forum podcast presents issue number one, Life with Archie, The Married Life, part one. Welcome to the first official episode of the Classic Comics Forum podcast. I'm your host, Scott Harris, and in this episode, I will be joined by the Classic Comics Forum founder, Shaxper, to discuss the classic Archie comic series, Life with Archie, The Married Life. Since 2014, the Classic Comics Forum has provided comic book fans with a community where they can gather together online to discuss and debate their favorite and least favorite comic books of days gone by, from the Golden Age to the Silver Age to the Bronze Age, all the way up to the beginning of the Modern Age. And the Classic Comics Forum podcast is an extension of that community. So every episode, I and fellow members of the Classic Comics Forum We'll be discussing classic issues. We'll be talking about seminal moments in comics history, discussing our favorite storylines, and the great artists and writers and publishers of Days Gone By, starting with one of the most groundbreaking and unique titles of the past 10 years, the instant classic series, Life with Archie, The Married Life, which was a transitional title for Archie that paved the way for all the innovation they've been doing in the years since. It featured a classic story from longtime comic book writer Paul Kupperberg, along with moody, terrific art from the likes of Norm Brayfogel, in the service of a story that was as emotionally affecting as it was politically controversial. Before we get into Life with Archie, though, Shakespeare and I sat down to discuss how and why he founded the Classic Comics Forum and how interacting with other fans on the forum has shaped and changed the way he thinks about collecting and reading comic books. I hope you enjoy. So welcome to the podcast, Shaxbar. Thanks again for joining me here. And for the sake of our audience who might not know the origin story behind the creation of the Classic Comics Forum, I was wondering if you could just uh, spend a minute explaining exactly how and why you ended up creating the Classic Comics Forum. You know, kind of to answer your question in a, in a weird reverse, reverse uh, ass-backwards sort of way, I guess I'll begin by talking about um, how I came to the community and then how I, in a weird way, created the community, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Uh, which is that uh, probably about 11 years now ago, um, I originally found the old Classic Comics uh, Forum as part of uh, CBR, um, Comic Book Resources. And uh, back then, I was uh, very much not knowledgeable about Classic Comics at all. In fact, I was uh, just looking for information about Chris Claremont's X-Men, which I thought was the gold standard in comics back then. And uh, people were just really patient with me and friendly and answered my questions and I just very quickly realized this is a place I wanted to be more of a part of. And uh, it changed my perspective on a lot of things, uh, comics only being one part of that. So uh, I tried to enmesh myself in that community as much as I could, met you amongst other people, and uh, always kind of thought of myself as a low man on the totem pole. Uh, No one all that remarkable. I wasn't adding much to the community, but I certainly loved it. And uh, then when the uh, CBR wipe happened that one day, uh, for those who don't know about that, uh, essentially as a small version of the Gamergate fiasco, uh, there were some objectionable contents um, 
posted another section of the CBR website that had nothing to do with us. And um, there was uh, basically, from what I understand, uh, some really serious abuse being directed towards a person. And uh, CBR's response was to sort of wipe everything clean, start with a new slate, and kind of latched onto that, uh, a way of simplifying the website and eliminating a lot of subsections of the community. So without warning, I logged on one night and there just was no more classic comics section, which had been pretty much my online life for the past six years. And that blew my mind because there'd been no warning whatsoever. Everything was deleted. Everything was gone. It took a while even to find an explanation. And um, I hadn't really been part of the rest of the website at all. It held no interest for me. So at first, a lot of people were just complaining and screaming and crying, you know, what's being done? How do we get this section back that meant everything to us? And when it became very clear that nobody was going to answer that question, uh, the discussion quickly transitioned to, we should start our own place. We should go somewhere. We should do something. And uh, it quickly occurred to me that no one really had a plan to actually do anything. They were just saying that a lot. Uh, I knew a lot about, or I don't want to say a lot. I knew a little bit about how to start um, an online discussion forum. Um, there was free software through ProBoards. That was, in my opinion, of a higher quality than what CBR was using. So I just created a temporary place. And um, there was nothing all that remarkable about that. The impressive part was that everybody followed me. Uh, certainly, if everybody who made the classic comic section remarkable had not moved over there, we would not have a CCF today. So I think I get way too much credit for having basically registered a website name. But uh, I'm certainly glad that we have what we have today. And um, it's certainly not me that makes it remarkable. The first night uh, when I registered the site, I was refreshing every minute, just watching to see who would sign up and join. And my fingers were crossed uh, because I realized if we didn't really get everybody who made the community amazing, it, it couldn't possibly be the classic comic section again. And, um, you know, when I saw the names roll in, it just, it, it, to be hokey, it warmed my heart. And I realized we could make it a new home. But, um, you know, it, it's funny, the, the original CBR, um, it had its advantages in a lot of ways. And to be fair, there were a lot of people there, um, particularly moderators who I think looked out for us and allowed the section to exist longer than certain people wanted it to. Um, there are things I miss about it. I, I miss that you'd have people who were casual, who just stroll in and go, hey, what is this place? And uh, maybe occasionally get a bit enlightened. Um, but I think a lot of people found CBR because of the advertising and the vast amounts of money they spent on advertising so that you would come to their site and then they could make money off their advertising and that whole cyclical nature. Um, I came just by Googling, trying to find a, a creator in an old comic book. So I was never there for the new stuff. I was always impressed that a classic comic section existed like that because it is a really rare discourse to find on the web. But um, yeah, we have our own place. It's bigger. We have a lot more conversation going on. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening. A lot of things that were really kind of revolutionary and edgy and not being done too often at CBR, like review threads, are a really common thing now. And um, I couldn't be happier. I think my only regret really is that I have to do more work now. I kind of liked being able to be a casual poster back in the day. So you mentioned um, that interacting with the people on the Classic Comics Forum really uh, broadened your perspective on comics and changed how you think about things as you learned from other collectors and readers, which is a perfect segue into uh, our next segment here. I've got a questionnaire. I'm just going to ask a few questions about your comic book experiences. And uh, this is something that I'm going to be doing with every guest that comes on so that when we get to the discussion uh, of the the comic, which today will be Life with Archie, uh, the listeners will have some sort of context for where you're coming from and what your comic reading experiences are. So we have an idea of, 
of what's informed your opinions on it. So just to, to start off with, simple question, what was the first comic that you ever read? Okay, um, just a quick thing. Um, I am, uh, I grew up in the late 80s when comics had ceased to be for children, which is sad because I was growing up watching like the Super Friends and wearing the licensed pajamas. So I bought my first comic book when I was five and it was Detective Comics number 572, I think. So one where Batman busts out of a coffin on the cover. And uh, it made absolutely no sense. It was a, a Doug Mensch comic that winds on prosaically for pages and pages using a tree as a metaphor for urban renewal. And I was five. So it made absolutely <laughs> no sense to me whatsoever. But I saved it until years later when I could decode it. Uh, I'm, first gu I'm guessing that, that I would not be able to understand it today. But I, I don't know if Doug Mensch understands it today. I'm a huge fan of, of Mensch in that run now, but that was not a good issue. Uh, so... I think the first comic I read and understood, uh, gee, there was a, a couple of probably Walt Disney comics back during the uh, DuckTales, that of the 80s. But the first one I really remember would have been the uh, death of Jason Todd, um, Batman number 428, maybe? I think that's right. I think that was it. And uh, I remember I picked it up because it was all over the news and my mom wanted me to buy it because it was going to be a collector's item because that was the culture of the era. And I actually dared to read the thing. And uh, it actually blew me away. As much as it is not a series that's well-remembered today, and it's often maligned by comic snobs like us, the actual issue where Batman finds the broken body was just beautiful. It was mostly a paro. Starlin didn't use a lot of dialogue. And it, uh, to this day, it's, it's just a very powerful thing that I'm glad I got to start my comicdom with. Okay. Uh, so what was the last comic you read? I think I know the answer to this. Like, let's say other than the Life with Archie issues you were just reading <laughs> before we started this. <laughs> uh, for, um, well, the classic comics forms, uh, graphic, not, what am I calling it now? The, uh, galaxy graphic novel quest, I think is what it's called is our new event for this month. So I've been reading Corto Maltese Ballad of the Salt Sea, um, in the break room at my school. Uh, I'm a teacher, uh, and that has been rocking my world. It's my fourth time reading it. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Cause I've never read it. Um, and it's something that's a series I've seen a lot about over the years on our classic comics form because we do have um, a couple of members in particular who are from Europe and talk a lot about European comics which is a subject that I would never have learned anything about if not for the forums and that's a series um, that's always sort of uh, stuck in my head as something I want to read along with um, Lieutenant Blueberry but yes. I haven't um, gotten around to it yet I guess I have you know I've got probably 2,000 comics in my room here that I've not actually ever read. So I've got such a huge backlog. It's just 3,219 is my number. So you're doing fine. <laughs> so if you uh, had just one story or one comic book run, uh, to take on a desert Island, what would you pick? Oh, I, I know who gave you that question idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, gee, uh, you know, I, I came up with the question and I don't, I never really stopped to think about the answer. I guess, you know, honestly, if we're going for rereadability, the comic that you can read again and again and again, it just never gets old. I think I'm going to double back to Usagi Ojimbo again and say that I would just take the uh, the saga editions they've released that uh, have you know, basically tens. I think it's uh, 14 issues per volume. And I would just kind of have a big suitcase of those and just reread them and reread them and reread them again. I can't argue with that choice. That's a, that's a good <laughs> pick. Um, what creator do you think is underrated? Oh, I am obsessed with as much as I 
spoke ill of one story earlier on. I'm obsessed with Doug Mensch. And uh, considering the work that he has done on, let's see, Batman, Master of Kung Fu, Deathlock, um, Aztec Ace, um, Weird World, there's so much great stuff he's created that even uh, his runs on like Fantastic Four and Thor, he, he was never sort of the jazzy, sexy, big celebrity writer that a lot of the later people in the 80s were. You know, he wasn't a John Byrne or an Alan Moore, but um, his work has such substance and meat to it that um, you can really get invested in the characters and also feel like your mind is being challenged and provoked even while reading some really fun superhero or horror stories, whatever it may be. Um, I have been reading every story he's ever written um, in chronological order, and I never regret that choice, even when I get to a bad issue. Oh, so unlike my decision to read all the Bronze Age Superman stories in order? <laughs> You're a braver man than I am, what can I say? Yeah, well, I mean, I gave up in the middle of 1977 and sold them all. Anyway, so what creator do you think is overrated? Oh, you know, back in the days of CBR, I made a lot of enemies whenever a discussion about Grant Morrison would come up. Uh, I think that he is somebody who gets by on being enigmatic, uh, leaving mysteries, uh, being vague in a way that makes him sound more intelligent than he is. And when you do the work and try and decode and understand all that he's thrown down, you realize there isn't that much substance. And there are ex exceptions to that rule. Uh, and there are stories of his where just even the tone and atmosphere is fantastic. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that I have a problem with Grant Morrison himself so much as I feel that his work uh, 10 years ago was uh, being severely overrated. And I'm sure I'll get a lot of hate mail for that one. Well, I can't even really comment because, to be honest, I've barely read any Grant Morrison. So I might be the one getting hate mail because at least you've read it and disliked <laughs> it. I mean, just, That's right. about, just about the only thing of his I've read is the sort of famous uh, Tomorrow Woman issue from JLA number five, I think it was. And um, my impression was simply that it was almost like a scene for scene recreation of the first appearance of the Vision in Avengers 57, which itself was a scene for scene homage to the first appearance of Wonder Man in Avengers 9. So I can't say I was super impressed with Morrison's creativity in that story, even though I saw so many people talking about how great it was. But other than that, I can't really say. I've hardly read anything else by him at all. I can speak with Malice coming as being a former Jaded fan, where um, I think the moment I, finally the bubble burst was he had a series uh, back in the early 2000s known as Seven Soldiers of Victory, mm -hmm. uh, where he basically brought back a lot of old DC properties and tried to reinvigorate them. And there was an overarching theme. I wouldn't even call it a theme. There are overarching clues running throughout the series, um, sort of strange goings on that... I got so into, I reread each issue multiple times, took out a notebook, started jotting down notes, trying to predict where things were going. My thought was, okay, you're going to be this mysterious and this complex, bring it on. I really want to see where this goes. And I did all this work and you sort of got to the end and it became very clear he was just making it up as he went along. And uh, I sort of began to realize in sort of a, a sixth sense final moment revelation that uh, everything I read of his up to that point did a lot of the same, where it blew a lot of smoke. And in the end, he was just sort of winging it as he went. And, um, well, enough of that. I mean, the man is entertaining. I just, uh, I think I'm still responding to fanboy hype from 10 years ago. All right, what character do you love? Isn't that a hard question to ask? If you'd asked me that before I found the classic comics community, it would have been easy. I would have gone with uh, Batman and Robin, Superman, the X-Men. 
uh, what I've since learned, um, you know, it sort of took away the rose colored glasses is that it comes down less to the property and more to the creators, um, whoever's involved in writing a particular run. So you can have a favorite character and you can say you love Batman and someone else loves Batman. Then you compare favorite stories and realize you have two completely different characters in mind. So, you know, other than the, uh, sort of create our own properties, you know, Usagi Ojimbo, your Cerebuses, your Sergio Aragonis' Gru, um, things like that. It's really hard to choose a franchise and say it's consistently something that you love. Um, maybe the Silver Surfer? So I, I guess that's my lame way of saying I have no idea how to answer that question, and I'm sincerely sorry for not living up to it. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's a, I mean, it's a very easy question for me to ask. It's a hard question for for anyone to answer. I don't know what my answer would be, but uh, I do have a, uh, just just to follow up, so I, I agree with what you're saying in terms of how the uh, the characters that uh, sort of the legacy characters that belong to companies, it really depends on who is writing it and, you know, what editorial allows them to do. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say who a favorite character is, but I'm wondering if the reverse is true. Because my next question is, what character do you hate? And <laughs> I think this is, while I agree with you in terms of it's hard to say who you love, I think there's characters that are consistently suck regardless of who's writing them. Oh, sure. So what character do you hate? I I think any time a character has disrupted uh, what was otherwise working in a comic book title, you know, you can start with Percival Pinkerton in more fun comics, making the Spectre into a funny cop series. Um, Percival Pop, yeah. Of all time, one that I hate the most, geez. Um, I don't hate Deadpool, but I hate most people who tell me Deadpool's their favorite character. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there, I just alienated some more people. I'm so sorry. Um, uh, anything Rob Liefeld ever created, probably. Um, X-Force, Youngblood, uh, those characters have no souls. I think I'd go there. Okay. All right, so last question. If you could create one comic book series that would feature can feature any characters and with any creative team, any writer, any artist, doesn't matter whether they're currently alive or not, what would your dream book be? Ooh, wow. That's a great question. You know, this might actually be a great segue into our topic today. Uh, and maybe I wouldn't have said this answer any other day. But um, when Life with Archie, The Married Life ended, I was utterly distraught. Uh, not just because it was a comic series I loved, but because there was a very clear way forward for the series that I wanted to see it take. Um It was a series that always went in unexpected directions and taught very hard lessons about life that I really respected. And and when they unceremoniously killed off Archie as a sheer soulless promotional stunt, I kind of thought it would have been amazing to keep going and call it Life Without Archie and make it a series about dealing with grief. And I actually begged Paul Kupperberg on Facebook to do this. I, um, got way too stalkerish and got Victor Gorlick's phone number and left numerous voicemails asking him to do this. And uh, yeah, I was that creepy about it. I actually, I was running a, a sur- uh, not a survey. I was running a, um, a petition um, up until the day that um, the classic comic section disappeared and it was time to create a website. That's where my energy had been trying to get this thing to happen. So uh, I think if today if Archie Comics and uh, Paul Kupperberg agreed to do it, I would still be so up for seeing that series happen. Yeah, I was going to actually bring up the petition later because, of course, I signed that petition. Um, yep, thank you. And, oh, you're welcome. Uh, clearly, our opinions weren't 
uh, in high demand at Archie Comics um, at that time. But I completely agreed. Yeah, so let's get into the series here. Um, and actually, the the people in charge of Archie is exactly where I was going to start with this. Um, not so much Victor Gorlick, who has been with the company since like 1750. Um, but the modern era of Archie really begins in 2009. Uh, when John Goldwater became CEO. Um, now, John Goldwater's father, John L. Goldwater, was one of the original founders of Archie Comics back in 1940, 41, 39. I forget when it was still called MLJ. It must have been like 39. Um, and he, when he died, he basically handed the company over to his son, Richard. And when Richard died, his second son, um, Richard's brother, John Goldwater, took over as CEO in 2009 and he immediately brought with him on an entirely different uh, vision for the company, which up to that point had really been stagnant um, where he wanted to, there's a number of things he wanted to do both creatively and on the business side of things, all of which ended up dovetailing into um, life with Archie and uh, it almost immediately, like the first big thing that happened under John Goldwater's regime was the Archie Mary's uh, Veronica, the Archie Mary's Betty storyline, which ran in Archie Comics number 600 through 606, uh, coming out right at the, uh, the end of um, 2009. And uh, this was um, it's a seven-issue storyline. The first three issues were Archie Mary's Veronica. The next three issues were Archie Mary's Betty. And then there was like a... The last issue was sort of a wrap-up. And in that storyline, um, this is all going to come into play because Paul Kupperberg did a lot of like... Speaking of like Roy Thomas-esque continuity juggling, <laughs> some of the stuff Paul Kupperberg did was amazing and, in my opinion, detrimental. But uh, it sort of all built off of the the original conceit that writer Michael Usland did. And um, Michael Usland basically set up this place, which had actually appeared in Archie before, um, called Memory Lane. And when you walk down Memory Lane, you can basically like relive, or sometimes you time travel to the past and whatever. In this case, um, I think what happened is Archie like came into it, uh, it's been a while since I've read this, original story but he came into it like from the wrong side so he's going the wrong direction so he's actually seeing the future and he sees these alternate futures one where he met marries veronica another one where he marries betty and then at the end the last issue uh there's he basically overloads and he starts seeing visions of him marrying like every character in archie comics and then he just like sort of runs off and except no for jughead we all wanted to see him marry jughead uh, yeah, I, well, I've definitely seen like um, they did a they did a thing a few years later where they had um, a different artists do variant covers for like the collected edition or something, and then they released them all. And one of the artists did like a um, Veronica Mary's Betty cover, uh, and then there was another one that was it was Jughead and he's marrying a giant hamburger. So, um, but but uh, yeah. Just about the only person Archie Back. didn't marry in there was Jughead. Um, <laughs> so this storyline ended up getting um, a lot more media attention than they expected. Like, they, it was just something they were doing for issue 600, and they kind of knew, you know, like, it, it was basically going to be a, a what-if, sort of alternate future storyline 
wasn't really going to have any lasting impact on the series. It was just an interesting event to do to celebrate the issue 600. But when they announced it, there was like a huge media frenzy because people couldn't believe Archie was getting married. You know, people that aren't comic fans don't really understand how these uh, imaginary stories work. So they're like, all they hear is, oh my God, you know, Archie's marrying... And then they couldn't believe that he actually picked Veronica over Betty because everyone in the world thinks that's a terrible decision. (laughs) So there's like this huge amount of uh, media attention over it. Um, And that pretty quickly, and then it sold really well too. They went to Second Prince and stuff. And so pretty quickly... uh, It was a trade paperback published. Uh, It was solicited before the series had even concluded. I remember that too. Yeah, so, and, and I think that it was kind of a no brainer for John Goldwater to say, Hey, we're, we're selling like gangbusters here, getting all sorts of media attention we never had before. Why don't we continue the series? Um, why don't we stretch this out? Now I do want to mention real quick, the original writer, like I mentioned was Michael Uslan, And, uh, I find it very, like, it's such a strange choice. I don't know if he had the original concept for this or how this came about. I have no idea. I have looked into it a little bit and just, I don't know. But for most comic fans, if they know who Michael Uslan is, it's because he's pretty well known as the producer for all the Batman movies. He actually ended up writing a book about his experience as being a huge comic book fan uh, and a huge Batman fan. And somehow, um, back in the late 70s, I think, he convinced DC Comics to sell him the uh, movie rights to Batman. He optioned the rights from DC, and he spent years and years trying to get movies made. And then, of course, he finally got the Tim Burton Batman made in 1989, made a ton of money for everybody, and he has produced all the Batman movies since. And uh, somehow, he ended up in the middle of all this. You know, this is 2009, so the Dark Knight trilogy from Christopher Nolan is right in the middle of being produced he ended up hooking up with Archie Comics to write this Archie Mary series Uh, but whether because he was just too busy with his Batman stuff or for some other reason when they launched the Life with Archie series instead they picked Paul Kupperberg as a writer and they teamed him up with Norm Brayfogle as the artist I know that you're a big fan of Brayfogle oh yes and there's your Batman connection again. And Paul Kupperberg is a guy who's written like just about every DC series that was ever printed, and along with tons of stuff for Marvel. And um, weirdly, like after he eventually became an editor of DC, and he quit that to become the uh, publisher of um, or editor in chief, I forget which, of uh, Weekly World News. Um, that I did not know. I know, I did a little Googling. Oh, that's awesome. I had no idea. So Bat Boy and all that fun stuff. Yeah, exactly. So when that <laughs> one that went out of business, though, he w- went back to writing comics. And uh, so in 2010, they launched Life with Archie with a team of Paul Kupperberg and Nor Brayfogle. But before we get into what Kupperberg and Brayfogle were doing, I want to talk a little bit first about the format that Archie decided to publish the comic in. Because they did a, something very strange. We have to talk about this, absolutely. Right, so they published it in a magazine format instead of a comic book format. And um, it was not just uh, like a, com- a magazine-sized comic book. Instead, it was this strange like hybrid thing 
where it was part comic book and part like a teen beat sort of um, magazine where it would have articles about like Justin Bieber and uh, stuff like that mixed in with the story. And for me, it just didn't make any sense because the audience that this story was drawing is completely different, I think, than the audience that those magazine elements would be catering to. I don't think it was... Covers pulled up in front of me right now. And just to read a couple of the things that you see on the covers, there's a free Justin Bieber poster in the first issue, um, free hot B&V posters. I don't even know who that is. Um, Archie's Guide to Glee, which celebs are, uh, which Archie celeb, which I can't even read this, which celebs Archie comics sort of thing where they would uh, essentially say they take a hot teenage heartthrob and say they'd be Veronica or Archie or. And then, uh, if you recall, later on they added Jinx as a as an extra feature, sort of in there, which was sort of like a a teenage girl problem sort of feature that ran through the book. And uh, I totally agree with you because what was odd, what I loved about Archie: The Married Life is it was it was a book written about what happens after you stop being a teenager, which is you know a very romanticized time uh, in comics. It's what made Archie successful. Uh, sort of in pop culture, it seems like you idealize being a kid. You idealize being a teenager, and then you fast forward to being an adult supporting character in someone else's book. You know, even when Batman uh, gets his introspection, it's always being about about being a dark knight, not about being like a thirty-year-old guy trying to figure out where his life is going. And, and so, this comic sort of became a book, I think, for anyone who'd ever been twenty-three years old, you know, out of college and not sure who they are and what they're doing. And those people were never going to be attracted to a book talking about free Justin Bieber posters and the people who'd be interested in free Justin Bieber posters were never going to be interested in a book that talks about those kinds of things. It very much seemed like the book was set up to fail because they had no idea who the target audience was. I agree. I do think though that there was a a weird second agenda going on with that. And I don't know if it's specifically why they decided to mix these two completely incompatible things or not. But one thing that was happening at this time was that Archie was sort of, It was the only publisher that was still utilizing the newsstand. You could still get Archie Comics at that time at grocery stores and at uh, convenience stores and stuff like that. And the magazine size uh, format, I think, was designed to get them more space and more prominent space on the newsstand, uh, which... It seems to me to be a very 1970s sort of problem. Like it's the same reason that Jack Kirby came up with the, you know, in the days of the mob or the spirit world magazines in 1971. Uh, But they were still trying to do the same thing. And I have this sneaking suspicion that they added these teen beat elements to it less to cater to the audience and more to cater to their distributors and to convince them to carry the magazine and, and, display it uh in their limited display space that makes sense and interestingly enough they the just looking at the covers they really stopped doing that with issue 10 which is at a point where hopefully the magazine would be established maybe and then at that point it just offers what's actually inside yeah um i think it's interesting the book was still selling pretty well at that point i don't have the sales figures called up here but at one point i had researched them and the magazine sold very well at first, uh, but it shed readers pretty rapidly and pretty consistently. 
And the financial reality for Archie might have been a little different by this point um, because this these are the last days of them really being heavily involved in the uh, newsstand, which is interesting to me. I feel like the magazine format and everything they were doing with the magazine was almost an experiment, like so much of other things that John Goldwater was doing. Because one of the other things that was coming to play at this time is he was really pushing Archie to be at the forefront of the digital comics movement. Archie was the first publisher to have same-day and date digital release as a hard copy release. And they very quickly made like tons and tons of material available online. And uh, so they were really trying to do a lot of different types of distribution experiments. Uh, because newsstand just wasn't really working for them. I remember when my first issue was 19 is the first one I bought off the stands. And at that time you could still find life with Archie on the stands along with Archie comics. My grocery store carried it in their magazine section, but by issue 25 or so it was gone. And uh, that coincided with Archie comics also taking their digests, um, out of the checkout aisles where Archie was actually paying a fee to stores to display their digest up front. They stopped doing that and as a result the sales dropped quite a bit so I think they were looking for new ways to sell comics because the old ways just weren't working. So I feel like the the experiment here with the magazine format and all this Justin Bieber stuff like the issue I'm looking at here is number six and it's got a Selena Gomez thing on the cover um, and something about um, Twilight. I think <laughs> I think those were experiments uh, in distribution to try and to not just appeal to a different audience, but try and appeal to a different uh, distribution system. And I don't really think it works. And one reason, one way we're going to see how it how they changed their approach, and I'm jumping ahead of myself here, is that about the time where it disappeared from the newsstands uh, in the you know around number twenty four, twenty five. Just before that, they start doing variant covers because instead they start pursuing the direct market as their primary outlet of distribution. The content gets bolder at that point, too, with the uh, the Kevin Kelly violence issue, number yes. 22, that was. But uh, just as a side note, I do think uh, Life with Archie and the Married Life might be the only comic book in my collection that does ask the question on the cover, who is your dream hottie? I don't think that's true for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, issue I, number six your favorite <laughs> yeah i mean i do have a um a fairly extensive collection of romance comics and a lot of the covers in the late 60s and early 70s in particular would ask questions like that uh but so they use the phrase hottie that's the question mm, probably not probably not <laughs> that's that's pretty much the highlight for me but i'm sorry i digress no that's all right and one thing that you did bring up that i completely blanked on when i was preparing this is actually the Jinx uh, backup feature. It's not really a backup because it's in the middle of the book, but the, the Jinx feature, uh, Jinx was a character like Archie who had appeared in the comics for a long time, starting back in the 50s and running throughout the 60s and 70s uh, in pep comics mainly, but sometimes in other things. It'd be a short feature that would run four or five pages. And in those stories, it's Lil Jinx, and she's like, I don't know, six or seven years old. So just like the Archie character is aged up here into adulthood from teenagehood, Jinx is being aged up from a child into a teenager at the same time. 
And I found that story to be really cool. I have the collected edition here and it was really frustrating for me when they abruptly stopped running that feature right in the middle of a story arc. I'm not going to lie. I hated the Jinx feature and was really glad it was gone. (laughs) It felt like pandering to me um, a a lot like the front covers. I I felt like that was blatantly targeted a demographic I was not part of. And maybe I just lacked the imagination that you had that you were able to get into it. Well, I do read a lot of Archie, although that's something we'll get into a little bit later, um, how this is sort of a gateway for me into Archie comics. Uh, but now that we sort of talked all around the issue, let's jump into <laughs> the issues themselves. Oh, let's do it. Um, and at the beginning of the storyline, I sort of lumped the first 12 issues in together. There's technically like two different arcs here. Um, but honestly, I don't even remember what the main story arc was at, uh, at the beginning of the book. Because for me, Archie himself and his main plot line he's kind of a bit of a boring sort of black hole. And it's not to say that the plots aren't interesting because they are because Kupperberg is a really good writer and there's a lot of melodrama, but what was happening with Archie in those first issues, um, was not as interesting to me as just the overall way that they reimagined all the supporting characters. There's only so much they could do with Archie himself. Um, cause the basic premise is right there in one universe. He's married to Veronica and then the other one, he's married to Betty. So, Plus, Archie's 600 through 606 had spelt out exactly what his lifeline would be with both of those characters. Correct. So there wasn't really that much that he could do um, on a big scale. It was all sort of like issue to issue, you know, what little things are happening here to cause drama in his life. But he was able to really um, work with the supporting characters to do a lot of really interesting uh, in-depth character work. Um, just real quick for those you know, I'm guessing most of the people listening to this haven't read the book. Uh, the only real difference between the two universes in terms of what's happening with Archie himself is in one universe, he's married to Veronica. And in that universe, he goes, he becomes a businessman and goes to work for Mr. Lodge. In the other universe where he's married to Betty, the series actually starts with them where they're not in Riverdale. They've moved to New York because Archie is trying to pursue his uh, dream to become a musician. It doesn't work out. And they move back to Riverdale and he becomes a music teacher. So they are, there's a different vision of Archie's future based on who he ends up marrying, which is both, for me, is kind of both realistic uh, and also kind of telling as to what a wishy-washy nobody Archie is. <laughs> that he, he doesn't really have a vision for his own life. It completely depends on who his girlfriend is. And they play that up in both of the stories as well. Uh... Both uh, both wives essentially end up steering his life as he basically feels sorry for himself and confused and occasionally appreciative. Yeah. One thing we'll get into, I've, I personally, I found the, the Archie Mary's Betty story to be much more interesting because his sort of dream of pursuing music and some of the, the twists that happen there just felt more organic to the character to me than his becoming a businessman and locking horns with Mr. Lodge all the time. Oh, then I'm going to do my pitch for uh, Archie Mary's Veronica, which was my favorite. Uh, And what I loved about that one was less uh, his employment and more the fact that it worked through very realistically a problematic marriage, Uh, a couple that right from the get go has tensions they have to work through and really no holds were barred. I mean, they, they end up living apart for a while and it just felt thoroughly 
authentic and original to comic books. I've never seen anything like that before. That's a good point. I do feel like some of the drama in the Archie Mary's uh, Betty storyline that happened, most of it happens later at the beginning the the main drama comes from evil Mr. Lodge. Um, and I want to talk about Mr. Lodge in a minute here as one of the supporting characters who probably uh, diverged most from the source material of all the characters in the book. But uh, in the Archie Mary's Betty storyline, he tries to bribe Archie into divorcing Betty and marrying Veronica. And uh, that is kind of a crazy storyline. But it's also, um, to speak to your point, it's, it's much more manufactured drama than this more realistic type of interpersonal drama that was happening in his relationship with Veronica. And there was the whole problem with it was that I think all of us, or at least most sane people, always wanted Archie to end up with Betty. So you marry the perfect girl, where do you get conflict? You, you have to introduce it externally. Whereas I think anyone could tell you that Archie marrying Veronica was going to be full of very natural and organic conflict from day one. And while they didn't separate so much later, you're correct about that, uh, the tension was right there in the beginning. And I think uh, Bray Fogel's moodiest, most powerful panels were always ones in which one or the other of them would be brooding after a, uh, an interaction that didn't quite go well. Yeah, and Bray Fogel's art here is really great. Um, one thing that happens, unfortunately, much too early in the book is Bray Fogel, after, I'm not sure if it's after the first arc or the second one, ends up leaving the book, and he's replaced in one series by um, Tim and Pat Kennedy, and in the other by Fernando Ruiz. Those are both art teams that, had been working in Archie for a long time and there, there's some good and bad to that. I mean, the good part is because they're used to doing Archie house style, they're very adept at sort of emulating other artists work. And so both teams do a pretty admirable job of trying to capture uh Bray Fogle style. Um, but on the flip side, neither of them are as good as Bray Fogle. And I do think the book suffers a little bit, um, because it doesn't have that sort of moodiness, even in some of the darker storyline aspects, it, it comes, the art is just a little bit too like, um, up. Yeah. It's a little too upbeat in some of the darker moments where I think Bray Fogel, and again, we're going to get into all this when we get to that part, but like, for instance, in the, the scenes where Archie gets shot, for instance, uh, I think if Bray Fogel had been able to do that storyline, it would have been more powerful uh, just on an artistic level because he was so good at, at that moody stuff. Absolutely. Uh, so we mentioned Mr. Lodge um, and I mentioned that the supporting characters is where Kupperberg was really able to branch out. And um, Mr. Lodge is, is a case where he, I think, diverged the most of any of the characters, but he did a lot of work with the other characters. And one thing that I know you want to talk about and I want to discuss too is how they managed to sort of deepen the characters and make them really complex and interesting and add a lot to them, but still, with the minor exceptions here and there, like Mr. Lodge, remain very true to the core of the character at the same time. Absolutely. You know, I probably should have led with this. Um, might have been helpful in the beginning. I'm not an Archie fan. Uh, and I know you very much are. Um, I think most people in America are in love with the concept of the Archie characters. Uh, the tropes that they represent are, I mean, who doesn't like Jughead? 
But most of us, uh, at least these days, unfortunately, don't feel compelled issue after issue to read an RG comic book and follow those characters in new hilarious hijinks. So the fact that this is literally in my top 20, maybe my top 10 favorite comic book runs of all time, I hope would tell someone who doesn't read Archie, who's listening to this and has endured with us through this long, to actually consider picking it up because it, it truly does things that I, I approached as a total non-Archie fan and got incredibly hooked to the point that I'll never forget this volume and still want to talk about it seven years later. I was introduced to Archie at a young age to the point where I don't actually remember ever reading the Archie comics as a kid, but I know I did. Because what happened for me was um, in the summer of 2012, I was house-sitting for someone. And so I was bored, and one day I was at Barnes & Noble, and Archie had just put out um, a collected volume of the, the greatest Archie stories um, that they'd ever published. I forget exactly what the title was. It's like a 450-page paperback-sized collection that's like 10 bucks, And uh, <coughs> so... I was like, you know, uh, I've been reading a little bit about how, you know, Archie was sort of on an uptick and um, I was interested in reading some of the older stuff. So I decided on a whim to get it and I was blown away by some of the great cartooning in the book. Some of the gag strips from the 50s and 60s uh, were just amazing. And at the end of this book, they had um, an entire issue of... Life with Archie, The Married Life, um, reprinted in the back, the whole issue. I forget which issue it was, but I loved it. And I immediately ran out to the grocery store and bought issue 19, which is the current issue, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so I am a huge Archie fan now, but when I first encountered this book, uh, Life with Archie, I actually was coming to the whole Archie universe relatively fresh because I hadn't read any Archie comics in 30 years. And, um, was sort of, you know, I quickly got into the back issues, but I was sort of learning about the characters simultaneously through the back issues with the classic Archie stories and reading the life with Archie version at the same time. Wow. That's pretty cool way to enter it. Yeah. And I, I highly recommend that volume. There's a follow-up volume. That's also pretty good, but like the, the first volume where they say it's the best of Archie, they're not kidding. There's some really great stuff in there. Uh, I quickly discovered um, Harry Lucy became one of my favorite artists of all time, reading some of his gag strips in there. His art is vastly underrated. There, there are definitely, among Archie fans, there are some hardcore Lucy supporters like myself. But, you know, you talk to most... Um, Archie people and they'll talk about how great Dan DiCarlo is. I mean, DiCarlo is great, you know, and they base their whole house style around his art. But as as cool as he is, for my money, it, nobody holds a candle to Harry Lucy. Um, but anyway, that's that again. That's probably for another podcast. I, I think the whole reason why I'm not a classic Archie fan is the same reason why I'm not generally a fan of Silver Age superheroes, um, because they had to return to the status quo every issue. Uh, it essentially made it back in a time period where there were no trade paperbacks and where you couldn't go to back issues, you bought the issue off the racks that would give you another experience with your favorite characters. But to go back and reread them in hindsight, unless you're really appreciative of the artistic styles uh, and the level of depth that you are, it, it sort of feels like the same thing over and over again. And maybe that's unfair to say. I've certainly tried Archie a number of times, but it's sort of like Archie the Married Life 
I'm amazed they didn't try it 30 years earlier because, you know, when DC Silver Age stories began to feel stagnant, they'd have their imaginary stories, you know, where Superman would fi finally marry Lois Lane. And those were fun because it broke up the status quo and what an interesting new place is that drew new things from the characters. And that is exactly what I love about the stretch of comic books. Yeah, and uh, you actually just reminded me to mention that while they didn't try this storyline exactly in the past, this was not the first Life with Archie title. The first Life with Archie title was a series that started in 1958 and ran for 286 issues, ended in 1991. And it went through a bunch of different phases um, with different types of material. But for most of the book, it was dealing in longer stories that were more dramatic uh, than the ones you would get from the regular Archie comics. And so in terms of, you know, when they decided to do The Married Life, the reason they picked The Life with Archie as the title for the book was basically a nod to that old classic series. Uh, so let's get back to the characters. So there's a few specific characters and storylines that uh, happen um, in the pages of, of this series that, that I find fascinating. One thing that struck me when I was uh, sort of reviewing these issues for this podcast is how much stuff happens in the first issue. Um, it's particularly noticeable compared to how much stuff does not happen in later issues, which again, we'll get to later. But the first few issues are really packed with like every character has all these life events taking place, like boom, boom, boom. And in the first issue, the first story you read is the Archie Mary's Veronica and yeah, there's a lot of stuff about Archie and Veronica, but the real focus of the issue is actually Moose Mason. Um, My favorite character in this series. And it's amazing because Moose, until this series, had been almost completely one note. Now I say almost because uh, in the late 2000s, um, th there were some more introspective and interesting stories that were being done with the characters, some experimentation with different types of stories. And in some of those, they did flesh out Moose a little bit. There's a mention they make, I think, in issue number six, and I don't want to give away who dies in that one. But um, Moose mentions uh, a time when he was diagnosed with dyslexia. Was yes. that an actual story, or did they just add that in hindsight? I think that was an actual story, yeah. Um, so Moose first appeared in Jughead number one, in which came out in 1949. And he, throughout most of the series was basically a big, huge, like hulking guy who was incredibly stupid, a great athlete. And his only real characteristics were he ha was very dumb and had a violent temper, particularly when it came to his girlfriend, Midge Clump. And, and he was, his best friend was Dilton Doily. And that's it. Like nothing else was ever done with him. He was um, sort of a one or two note joke character. They would play him for laughs because he was so dumb and they would play him for laughs because he would beat the crap out of the other characters. You know, sometimes he would be a supporting character in a Dilton story because uh, they, they play the two of them off each other where Dilton is physically weak but really smart and Moose is the opposite so they make a funny odd couple because they're best friends. Uh, but that's it. Like there was never really anything done with Moose to the point where... Um, there was an early story where they gave him a different name, uh, which happened a lot in the early Archie comics where they had no continuity. But basically his real name was has n had never been mentioned until the first issue of Life with Archie where it's revealed that his first name is actually Marmaduke. 
And uh, I just thought it was amazing what they do with them. And what they do with them is completely different in one universe compared to the other. Because in, in the Mary's Veronica universe, he runs for mayor. Uh, it starts off with Midge breaking up with him because she can't deal with his um, violent possessiveness anymore. He realizes sort of that he has some anger issues and he uh, meets this like uh, yoga instructor um, who sort of uh, teaches him to calm himself down. And he ends up at the end of the first issue deciding to run for mayor. And as the storyline goes on here, in the that first... Really all happened in one issue? My gosh. Yeah, all of that happens in one issue. Because it felt like an epic adventure. I mean, as ridiculous as it sounds in synopses, it was, it was a really powerful story to follow, and it felt like it took 10 issues to tell it. Yeah, and what's crazy is that that what I've just described with him going through all those realizations running for mayor is just one of the plot lines in the first issue <laughs> in just the Archie Mary's Veronica first issue, because the each issue of life with Archie had was split in half with the first part being Archie Mary's Veronica, the second half Archie Mary's Betty. They were both full sized comic books. So the, the, the magazine would basically be 44 pages of comics um, until little jinx showed up. Uh, and the question of uh, who your dream hottie is, don't forget that. Yeah, right, and uh, we don't want to leave that out because I still I still haven't decided who my dream hottie is. I've got to figure that out. That's actually what the podcast is going to be about for the rest of the run. Can we just do a Bieber podcast? I think it's necessary. Uh, I, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Um, but yeah, all that was the first issue, and then over these first couple uh, arcs up through issue 12 or so, we do follow Moose as he runs for mayor and he eventually is elected mayor, and for the rest of the series in the Veronica universe, Moose Mason is the mayor. And in the Betty universe, on the other hand, um, he ends up becoming, he becomes uh, Sven, the uh, custodian's assistant in Riverdale High, and then when Sven ends up marrying Miss Beasley and, and the two of them leave town to enjoy their retirement together, um, Moose becomes the new custodian of Riverdale. And since the series is um, about Betty and Archie being teachers at Riverdale High, Moose is in a lot of those stories because he's at the locale. And it's fascinating in both cases. Um, one doesn't feel cheaper or like less of an accomplishment than the other one. In both cases, Moose finds tremendous self-fulfillment. And, you know, we're rooting for him and in seeing a vast transformation. I... I like the Mary one better. I think we jumped into it faster. It took a lot longer for him to get established in the Betty um, Mary's Archie storyline. But both were handled with remarkable subtlety and depth. And sometimes I think Paul Kupperberg himself seemed to like Moose more than he liked Archie. I think so, too. And another, not to jump too quickly away from Moose, but something you mentioned there made me think um, that I also want to talk about Reggie. Because like Moose, he has very different... Uh, character arc in the two series in terms of what he's doing, but they both, uh, neither one feels better or worse than the other, and they both have a redemptive quality. In the Veronica universe, he runs a, a, an auto garage, whereas in the Betty universe, he takes over the newspaper from his father and becomes a journalist. Um, and so they're very different paths. In the, in the Veronica universe, he's trying to become a reality TV star, uh, so he starts like a reality TV show chronicling um, his his life at the garage. And uh, whereas in the other one, that doesn't happen, of course. But and interestingly, the other thing that happens with Reggie is 
in both worlds, he ends up with the girl that Archie does not choose, which it, it makes sense in a way, but also seems kind of weird. I don't know. How did you feel about that? Uh, it, it very much felt like Reggie got the leftovers, although it also got creepy because in the Archie marries Veronica storyline, when uh, Archie and Veronica are on the rocks, that's when Reggie kind of begins to enter in and that gets a little awkward for a while too. Yeah. So uh, I know you're not as familiar with the characters, uh, the classic Archie versions of the characters as I am in the classic Archie universe. Reggie is, is he's Archie's rival for Veronica's affection specifically. There's, there have been, of course, since they've had every permutation possible at one point or another in the comics, there have been a couple stories where he got involved with Betty briefly, but since he first appeared very, very early on in the comics, he's been after Veronica. So the fact that he hooked up with Betty did feel a little strange to me. Um, him getting together with Veronica makes perfect sense for the character, but the Betty thing was a little bit weird. And it, it, so in a way it makes sense that in the two stories, like I don't even remember what happens in terms of his personal life with Veronica in the Archie Mary's Betty universe. But in the Archie Mary's Veronica universe where Reggie ends up with Betty, there's a lot more drama between the two. It centers mostly around the reality TV show. But um, I think it also springs from the fact that these characters just don't naturally fit together. It's almost like in the Archie Mary's Veronica world, everybody ended up with the wrong person. <laughs> well, theoretically, Archie and Veronica are the wrong people for each other, too. So there you go. Yeah, but I'll be honest. Reggie was always the... Um, of all these supporting characters in Life of Archie, uh, Life with Archie, rather, he was sort of the one I didn't buy into. Um, in both storylines, I just didn't feel for him at all. And maybe that's because I knew a little bit about his character in the past that I definitely didn't like him, or maybe Paul Kupperberg just didn't give him his fair shake. But I just, he was the one character I just never got invested in. The other people that got together with the wrong person, um, sort of, is Jughead and Midge, because also in the Archie Mary's Veronica universe, the two of them get together and, but they end up breaking up later on. I'm pretty sure I've got that right. That was in the Veronica universe. It's, it gets a little confusing because Jughead and Midge actually get together in both universes, but in the Archie Mary's Betty universe, they end up getting married and have a child together as opposed to in the Veronica universe where they end up uh, breaking up and Jughead later marries Ethel. Didn't that happen pretty quickly that they broke up in that universe? I think it did happen pretty quickly because um, the, the pacing of the story, there's so many character plot lines and they go very fast. Like there is not a wasted breath in the first two arcs. <laughs> they, they're going through stuff really quickly. So I did want to talk about both Jughead and Midge and then the two of them together. I mentioned that Moose is kind of a one note or a two and a half note character. Midge is basically a no-note character. Um, in the classic Archie comics, Midge has no defining characteristics at all other than the fact that she's Moose's girlfriend. So what happens inevitably in her stories is, is someone hits on Midge or accidentally hits on Midge or just is around Midge. Moose sees it, misinterprets things or interprets things correctly, flips out and beats the crap out of them. That's it. Midge never has any other defining personality traits, and she's been around since mm, the late 50s, I think, maybe the early 60s. She's been around a long time, and nothing was ever done with her. She's a total blank slate. 
The only time she ever really had an inkling of a personality was in the 60s when she would she was kind of written as a bit of a bad girl uh, where she was intentionally um, as sort of a power trip setting up these guys to get the crap kicked out of them by Moose. She seemed to really get off, first of all, on the illicit thrill of fooling around behind Moose's back and then get off even more on watching her boyfriend beat the out of these guys. Um, but in the early 70s, they Archie kind of sanded off the rougher edges of all their characters when they became popular in the cartoons. And uh, that sort of disappeared from Midge. And at that point, she had no characteristics at all, even less so once they sort of toned Moose down and he stopped beating people up. And then Midge had no purpose at all. So I kind of felt like that actually still happened in Life with Archie. Kupperberg did try to do some things with her. Uh, where, like, after she broke up with um, Jughead in the Veronica universe, they still remained business partners, and she kind of became a lawyer and ran, did all the business aspects of everything. Um, this was more than had ever been done. Like, just basically one page of Midge in this series was more character work than had ever been done with the character over the previous 40 years of her existence. But... I think Kupperberg was sort of handcuffed with Midge because he had nothing at all to work with. And while he did his best, I did think she was not as interesting as most of the other characters. In terms of characterization itself, that's true. But I also think she served as an important symbol. Uh, I think there was very much a, uh, I, this sounds conspiratorial, I don't need it in this way, but I think there was a feminist agenda with her in a very positive way. Um, first having her get out of a very abusive relationship um, not physically so, but emotionally so, and then getting involved with Jughead, suddenly realizing that that relationship was constraining as well. Uh, she wasn't coming off as capricious or flighty. She was someone who has tired of putting up with things that weren't right for her and was going to advocate for herself. And while she didn't have much personality, just having a character who'd always been known as the and part, Moose and Midge, uh, you know, and even Jughead and Midge, Having her walk away from that twice, which took courage and strength that Kupperberg showed, I think that was important. And I think that was powerful and groundbreaking and transformative. That's a good that's a good uh, viewpoint. I hadn't really thought of it that way, um, probably because Jughead's my favorite character. So usually when Midge is with Jughead, I'm more focused on what Jughead is doing uh, just because I find him most interesting. He he played a, an interesting role throughout this series in both universes. Um, even though he ends up with different women and different relationships, he's kind of the opposite of Archie in this way, where Archie's life is dictated by who he's dating. Jughead's exactly the opposite. He has the same fate in both universes, regardless of who he's with. He ends up um, buying the chocolate shop from Pop, turning it into a chain of burger joints that doesn't work out in either universe. And he sort of is almost like... Uh, in a weird way, like a Greek chorus where the other characters go to the chocolate shop to tell all their problems to Jughead and he gives them advice because he's the most grounded character. That does sort of work to his detriment, though, in a way where nothing really that interesting happens to him because he's so grounded that um, he's almost immune to to having a character arc because he knows himself. So he's so fully formed when the story starts, he doesn't really have to go anywhere. So he doesn't go anywhere. See, I absorbed it differently than that. I saw him struggling with responsibility and having to make some very tough decisions about uh, the future of his life, whether he wanted to make money and have responsibility or 
even what that meant. Uh, I agree that when other characters entered the shop, he suddenly became the uh, the wise one dispensing knowledge and burgers at the same time. But we certainly saw him sweat out quite a bit and do quite a bit of character reflection, particularly after Midge left him. That impressed me. And I'd always liked Jughead as a character, even though I haven't read many Archie comics. I was surprised at the level of depth I felt Copperberg gave to him into some of those conflicts he worked through. I guess what I'm reacting to here, and I've mentioned this several times now, is how later in the series, the pace of development drastically slows down. And yeah. the later issues, I guess, are sticking with me a lot more than the early issues because you're absolutely right. In these first 12 issues, a lot of stuff does happen with Jughead where um, he becomes super rich because the, the restaurant chain takes off and he has to suddenly decide, like, is, the, is being super rich really what he wants? Does he, does he uh, want to have all this responsibility? Does he want any of this stuff? Does he want to have these relationships? Does he want to be married? And he has this moment where, and by moment, I mean, this kind of his arc in the first 12 issues where he kind of grows up. Um, I guess I just felt like he grew up more quickly than all of the other characters because after this first arc, uh, when the, the pace of development and the, the pace of action in the series slows down, not much really happens to him from my perspective after the end of like these first 12 issues, he, he gets after he sort of sorted through those issues, particularly once he ends up with uh, Ethel, which happens after the end of the third arc. Um, he's kind of just in the burger shop and in, in the Betty universe, he ends up dealing with the shenanigans of his uh, delinquent sister, jelly bean. Um, that storyline was not my favorite. Uh, but, um, yeah, you're I right. Think, he, he does a lot. He does a lot of growth in the first 12 issues here. I think my basis of comparison in uh, Archie the Married Life is different than yours. Uh, whereas you're looking at it compared to Archie in general, I'm comparing it to soap operas, um, which I feel is the genre they were trying to move Archie into with this. And um, one of the uh, major traps of a good soap opera, note, there are good soap operas, <laughs> beyond just the idea that uh, oftentimes they're churned out very quickly is that you have a very limited cast of characters. Uh, and so you're constantly having to throw them back into peril episode after episode after episode. And I feel like that's exactly what was happening in the first couple of issues where things are happening at such a fast pace. While things did slow down and sometimes there were some issues that were a little bit not so enticing, I felt like what Kupperberg was trying to do was sort of you know put some characters on the back burner for now and let them rest so that it didn't feel like a new thing was forced down their throats all the time. Characters could experience some happiness and some success and not be perpetually in turmoil. And so Jughead could arrive at some level of peace after a, a hard battle. And then hopefully as a business owner, there would be some other threat that would come up later on. And agreed, the one with his sister was not the best ever. But uh, it just goes to show that ultimately Kupperberg was going to put him into new kinds of conflicts. Um, but each character got a break. Moose for a little while, once he becomes mayor, gets to sort of chill. And then new problems come his way, most importantly, what Mr. Lodge is working on. And so he comes back into the fold again. So I, I think ultimately what Copperberg was just trying to do was juggle his characters successfully. And sometimes the pacing didn't quite land the way it needed to. But I have no doubt that had the series continued, there would have been more good Jughead arcs up ahead. So at this point, we've talked about the character arcs for most of the main characters, but we haven't really touched on the central plot of the series. 
And that's because the central plot actually revolves around three characters that we haven't mentioned yet. The three of the most unlikely characters to hinge your series around, and that's Miss Grundy, Lil Ambrose, and the mysterious disappearance of Dilton Doily. So, that concludes our first episode of the Classic Comics Forum podcast. In the second episode, Shaxper and I will conclude our epic discussion of the life with Archie, the married life, going over the entire run from the shocking death that started the series right up to the shocking death that ended the series, and highlighting all the weird shenanigans that went on in between, including Crisis on Infinite Riverdales, Paul Kupperberg's liberal political agenda, and the accidental creation of one of the most popular Archie comics and recent memory afterlife with archie so join us next time and be sure to join us online at classiccomics.org